truly I say to you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I feel like in recent years I've become increasingly sensitive to Christianese, you know, the kinds of words and phrases that it seems only Christians or maybe evangelicals use. On the one hand, I think it's totally fine that communities have their own terminology. All, all kinds of subgroups have their own linguistic habits. Just spend some time in the halls of Wheaton North to hear some linguistic subcultures. <laughs> but on the other hand, I, I get worried about Christians sounding so different and using language that's so unfamiliar to those who aren't Christians that it'll become a barrier to talking about Jesus with others. It isn't words or phrases that pre-Christians need to embrace, it's the realities that underpin those words that are important. So I've become sensitive to language used to describe features of our Christian religion. And I admit that one such Christian-y phrase, Christianese phrase that is particularly cringeworthy to me when it comes out of the mouths of reporters around election time is born again. But born again Christians are voting this way, or born again Christians have these concerns. That candidate claims to be a born again Christian. And I think, what in the world does the descriptor born again mean to anyone outside of the Protestant, evangelical, Christian, linguistic community? But here's the thing that's harder for me to swallow, is that the phrase born again is literally right there in the Bible, coming out of the mouth of our Lord himself. <coughs> and it appears as though poor Nicodemus has as little a clue about what that phrase means as likely do the reporters on our major news outlets. So whether we embrace the self-description or not, and I don't think Jesus requires it, we do have to reckon with what it means, and what it represents, and how this aptly characterizes our walk with God, to use another bit of Christianese. And one of the meanings of this pithy phrase that I think is particularly applicable to us in this season is the manner that this phrase characterizes our utter dependence on God, something that's true for everyone, but a truth that only God's people have embraced by faith. If you were around for our Ash Wednesday services, you might recall that I was thinking with you about divine ownership. That is, God as the creator and originator of all that exists. God owns all things. All things come from you, O Lord, as we say in our liturgy. And God's ownership of all things reflects the dependence that all things have on God. Dependence for their initial existence and dependence on God for his continued sustaining. We humans, however, are prone to forgetfulness, and we're also now prone to sin. So instead of acknowledging and living according to this fundamental truth about reality, we instead act on a lie. The lie that we ourselves, we individuals, are the sole originators of all that we see, and that we alone own everything and have the right to anything and everything we want. And so on Ash Wednesday, we take those ashes on our heads as a reminder of the truth that we are but dust, and to dust we return. We do not make ourselves, rather we belong to God, and we continue to be dependent on God. When we recognize this, we come to understand this foundational truth, and we do this, and we have the opportunity then to live with the grain of reality, as one of God's people, as one of God's own special treasures. So over the next few weeks, I want to think with you about how we can live as one of God's people, people who belong to God and who live with the grain of reality. You know that phrase, right? It's like a carpenter's term. You know, when you're sanding a piece of wood, it's more 
effective, more beautiful, more smooth when you sand along the grain with the texture of the wood. I think that we're meant to belong to God. I think that all of reality is arranged for us to flourish when we live according to our status as belonging to God. And we live in peace and harmony with one another and with the whole creation when we live as God's people. So I want to see with you how this theme emerges from our Lenten lectionary readings in the next couple of weeks. And, and because we're Anglicans, I want to show how these lessons about what it means to God's people align with some aspects of our sacramental theology. And I hope this will contribute to our ability to live as God's people. Now the question of who gets to be God's people, uh, who are the people that belong to God, uh, is, is a question that saturates the pages of St. Paul's letter to the Romans. In our reading from chapter 4 this morning, Paul is continuing his attempt at introducing something of a paradigm shift to the Jewish readers of this letter. For generations, the, the, the people have thought that the way to be a person who belonged to God was first to be a Jew, and second to do all the stuff in the Old Covenant. You want to belong to God? Be a Jew and follow the law. But then Jesus came along, and then Pentecost happened, and then Paul got a call from God to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and the non-Jews, and all of a sudden it wasn't quite so clear who God's people were. And so Paul here in Romans 4 is making a case that non-Jews can also belong to God, and they don't have to do a bunch of things or follow the old covenant law in order to do so. All they have to do is to receive God's ownership of them by faith. Paul's key premise, or key illustration in his argument here, is that Abraham, the spiritual and biological progenitor of the Jews, Abraham was counted as one of God's people without being a Jew, because there weren't any yet, and, and two, without really having to do much of anything. It wasn't by adherence to the ritual law, it wasn't by having to do uh, any sorts of acts of obedience, it was simply by faith, as Paul says, that Abraham was considered righteous. When we look at our Old Testament reading this morning from Genesis 12, we see that there's, there's nothing that Abraham does to earn God's favor. Verse 4 of what we heard simply opens up with God saying to Abram, Go from your country, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. That's it. No prior indication that Abram had done anything great. No record of all the good deeds that Abram had done to win God's favor. God just chose Abram, told him to go, and that God would bless him. And Abram's response, verse 4, Abram went, as the Lord had told him. And back in, back in Romans, Paul makes a, makes a big deal about the fact that Abraham hadn't done anything to earn God's blessing. He just received it by faith. And why is Paul so concerned to communicate to his readers that Abraham became one of God's people by faith and not by anything he did? Well, I think it's because of grace. Paul makes this following observation here in verse 4. He says, To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. That is, if you work a job, you get paid your wages, and you don't call your paycheck a gift. It's what you're owed. It's what you're earned. That's not grace. Grace is not earned. Grace is not getting what we deserve. It's getting so much more than we deserve. Grace is a supernatural empowerment to follow God. And supernatural, it, it, it's beyond our nature, enabling us to go beyond what we could do on our own. I think this is the reason why the illustration of Abraham is so apropos for Paul, 
Abraham didn't do anything. He didn't earn it. His selection to be a person belonging to God was not a wage that he earned, but a gift that he had received. As Paul says, that's why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace. But then Paul turns the screw a, a little bit tighter on those who would say that God's people are not so by grace, but by some act they have done, or, or rules they have kept. In verse 9, Paul turns to ask about the blessing people receive as being God's people. And he asks, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, or also for the uncircumcised? And you might recall the act of circumcision was a, a key and foundational sign that the Jews pointed to as part of their identity as uniquely belonging to God. Paul goes on, For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness, how then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he'd been circumcised? Paul answers, it was not after, but before he was circumcised. That's just how things played out in the narrative in Genesis 12 and Genesis 17. Genesis 12, a reading from this morning, gives us the call of Abraham, when, when God says he'll bless Abraham, and even bless those who bless him. And it's not until Genesis 17, almost 25 years later, that God confirms this covenant with Abraham and tells him to circumcise his sons. Like Paul says, he, that Abraham, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still, was still uncircumcised. The work of circumcision wasn't the righteousness, it was Abraham's faith that had put him in a right standing with God, as belonging to God. <clears throat> circumcision only came later as a sort of divinely authorized way for Abraham to demonstrate his righteousness. In a sense, if being called by God to belong to God was the gift Abraham received by faith, then circumcision was just a way for Abraham to say thank you, so to speak, for the gift. We sort of do this all the time, right? If you get a gift from someone, you should utter the phrase thank you, but sometimes we're giving something, we're giving something so profound, so generous, that a simple verbal expression doesn't feel quite adequate. That's when we do something to say thanks, to express our gratitude. That's always downstream of the gift, and our reception of the gift. Paul makes the case here then that Abraham became God's person not because of anything he did, but simply because of grace. And this then is where I think the image that Jesus uses of being born again is so poignant and so apt. Yes, it's an image, it's an analogy, it's a picture in words, Poor old Nicodemus actually wonders how someone can climb back into the womb of their mother to be born again, but that's not the point. The point is that in the same manner as in one's physical birth, one is in a state of complete and utter dependence. So too in our spiritual birth is one totally and wholly dependent on God. This then relates to what I think Jesus means in verse 6 when he says, one must be born of water and the Spirit. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, one cannot enter the kingdom of God. I think the water baptism, he actually refers to physical birth. And the Spirit baptism refers to our new birth, our being born again. No one earns their physical birth. No one works to be conceived. All you have to do as a, as a helpless baby is simply receive the gift of life. So too, then, with our spiritual birth. You don't earn it. Not a wage, it's a gift. Being born again is to be born of the Spirit, born as one who has faith to realize our utter helpless dependence on God. 
So really what Jesus is doing here is attempting to remind Nicodemus of the lesson of Abraham, all that stuff Paul is getting at in Romans. I think that's why Jesus chastises Nicodemus. He says, are, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? He's saying, why don't you, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, why don't you remember Father Abraham? It wasn't anything he did. It wasn't following the law. It wasn't circumcision that made Abraham righteous. He was as active in his righteousness as a baby is in being born, which is to say not very active. Abraham's faith was a second birth in receiving the gift of becoming God's person. Abraham was born again. Now let me close in connecting this to one of our sacramental practices, the practice of baptism. For in baptism, I think we see a clear presentation of this truth of our belonging to God that shows our dependence on God. Some Anglicans, including this Anglican, highlight the fashion that baptism as a, as a new covenant, right, takes over or, or supersedes what circumcision accomplished in the old covenant. Whereas circumcision was the practice whereby one showed that one belonged to God and as a means of giving thanks to God for God's blessing, now baptism shows that forth for those of us in the New Covenant. If you've been born again by the Spirit and have received the gift of being made one of the people of God, you can respond by being baptized. Plus, as I alluded to on Ash Wednesday, in our baptismal liturgy, we, we make the sign of the cross on the newly baptized and declare that they are marked as Christ's own forever. They belong to Christ. They are one of God's people. I think, moreover, baptism displays our, our radical dependence on God. That's probably why I think infant baptism is so poignant. No infant can earn baptism. No infant can declare they wish to participate in this rite. An infant is only able to receive with her sponsor, or able to receive what her sponsors, or her parents, or her community, and her God are doing for and to her. And for us who, who view this, we too should be reminded that this is our posture to God as well. We belong to God, not because of anything we did, but because of the grace that God has poured out on his people. And so in this lens, as we redouble our efforts to remember that we belong to God, we do well to remember this by remembering our baptisms. When we see the font, when we cross ourselves, when we, even our sin reminds us of our need for and dependence on God. Let us remember that we too have been chosen by God to belong to him. Let us receive this as those who have been born again. Amen.